Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one wakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." Well, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's been a while, but it is a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you. So I've titled this message, Is Christianity Worth It? Is a Christian life worth it? That's a question worth asking for all of us who follow Christ. Now, if you're a Christian, you know the right answer most of you would say, yeah, of course, it is worth following Christ. But have you ever felt like it would be much easier if you weren't a Christian? Wouldn't it be easier if you didn't have to worry about all these rules and regulations that seem so hard to follow? On top of that, the guilt that you feel because you can't live up to these requirements. Or have you ever felt like, oh, why do I even pray to God if he doesn't answer my prayers? For good things, oftentimes for years. Instead, you see that those who don't pray, those who don't seek, they're blessed with the very same gift that you've been praying for. 
They didn't pray and ask God for that gift, and they didn't thank him for it either, but they get to enjoy it. This just seems terribly unfair. In your head, you know that God is good, but in your heart, sometimes you just feel like it might be easier to live this life apart from God. My wife introduced me to a band a few years ago that we really enjoy listening to. They are called The Head and The Heart. They kind of have an indie folk rock type of flavor to them. And I thought their name was really interesting, so I tried to figure out uh, how they came up with it. So I found the answer in an interview with their lead vocalist. And he says this, I came up with the name which came from a sort of growing up with a traditional, non-artistic, hardworking family. The idea was that you go to high school, you will do well to get into college, then you start dating someone, you graduate, you get a job, you marry that person, which is all great. But I was going along that route, and it was supposed to make sense, and it just didn't feel right. I started realizing that being in bands was not going to be just a hobby, but I was going to do it with my whole life. And though your head is telling you to be stable and find a good job, you know in your heart that this is what you're supposed to do, even if it's crazy. Now, before some of you parents over here of teenagers start freaking out, my purpose in using this illustration is not to analyze the wisdom of his decision to ignore his head and follow his heart to start a band. Rather, I want us to ask a more fundamental question about who we are as human beings. What is more important, what we believe or what we desire? What's more important, reason or emotions, the head or the heart. In our circles, we place a high premium on what we believe. We emphasize the importance of right thinking, precise doctrine, the priority of reason over emotions, of what we believe over what we desire. We think that as long as people believe the right things, we are satisfied that they will grow in the faith, or they are growing in the faith. But there's something that can be lost in our discipleship when we minimize faithfulness to God to merely believing a set of doctrines that we agree with while disregarding our emotions, our loves, and our desires. James K. Smith has written a book-length criticism of this aspect of the Christian worldview, which settles for right thinking and beliefs as the chief end of true spirituality. He argues that a person's worldview is not merely a set of doctrinal and philosophical beliefs, completely formed by reason and information. A worldview is also comprised of a set of hopes and loves, tacit knowledge, and heart attitudes. They are not all adopted consciously and deliberately. They're more a result of experience, community life, and daily practices. So what he's saying here is basically human beings are complex. We are not simply defined by what we believe, but also by what we love, what we set our hopes and longings on. Yes, right thinking is important, but the biblical worldview is concerned not only with what we believe, 
but also with what we desire, what we love. And I want you to know this morning that God is just as concerned with what we desire as what we believe, the head and the heart. Psalm 73 is an honest glimpse into the life of Asaph, who had good theology, but he was struggling with his desires. He believed the right things, but his emotions were all over the place. He was not doubting God at an intellectual level, but much deeper at an emotional level. And this psalm, like many of the psalms, encourage emotional transformation at the level of our deepest desires. Notice the two words in this psalm that capture the nature of Asaph's emotional transformation. In verse th 3, we see that Asaph is envious, which is a desire, of the prosperity of the wicked. And then in verse 25, we see that Asaph has been transformed to desire God more than anything else in this world. Now, if you're like me, we can often be content with thinking and believing the right things about God. But God wants to transform us in such a way that we desire Him above everything else. Now, if you're here this morning struggling to desire God or wondering, is this worth it? Am I wasting my time with Christianity? Or maybe you're here, you, you know the right thing to say is that God is good, but secretly you are angry at God because He is not giving you the life you want. He is not making you rich and successful. He isn't giving you the job you want, the spouse you want, the child you want. And it seems like everyone else in the world gets to enjoy life without any regard for God. And they are blessed with success, with pleasures, and ease. But you are barely getting by. Friend, you are not alone. Asaph found himself in this exact position that your heart is in this morning. And he knows how to help us. I have three points this morning, and it's this. First, the wicked seem enviable. Two, God's revelation is clarifying. And three, desiring to be near God brings eternal satisfaction. So let's try and get inside Asaph's head and his heart and see that God cares about your desires and he's working to transform your desires to find a deep and satisfying fulfillment in him. Let me say that again. God cares about your desires, and he is working to transform your desires to find a deep and satisfying fulfillment in him. All right, first point, the wicked seem enviable. So Asaph here begins in verse 1 with his head. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph here has really good theology. He has affirmed the theological truth that God is always good to his covenant people. In this case, the faithful among Israel. And he characterizes them here as pure in heart. 
Now, by using this phrase, he's not claiming some sort of sinless perfection for God's people. Rather, he means that they are loyal in their hearts towards God. They are not double-minded in their allegiance to God. They are genuinely following the one true God, Yahweh. Yet, while he believes this truth, there is something in his heart that begins to bother him, and it turns into an existential crisis for him. Verse 2 says this, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. While he knows that God is good to his people in his head, much deeper at the level of his emotions, he begins to envy the prosperity of the wicked, those who are not faithful to Yahweh. Now, let's be clear here. This is not an intellectual crisis about why bad things happen to the righteous, nor is it an intellectual crisis about why the wicked prosper, which are legitimate questions, but they are not the purpose of this psalm. Those are more addressed in the book of Job and other wisdom books. Rather, here in this psalm, Asaph's problem is in his heart. He desires, he envies the relative ease and prosperity of the wicked. And as he begins to dwell on this more and more, he begins to spiral downward and downward. Let's look at verses 4 through 12. In verse 4 and 5, he observes that the wicked enjoy long and healthy lives. They are fat and sleek. They enjoy food, pleasures, comforts of this life. In verse 6, he describes their unchecked pride, their arrogance, their violence. Verse 7 says that whatever they desire with their eyes and hearts, they have. They just don't seem to suffer like everyone else. Have you ever envied those that don't follow Christ? I certainly have. Have you ever wondered how much more you could have for yourself if you didn't have to give money to the church and support missionaries? Man, I could get a better house. I could pay off my debt. I could provide a little better for my family. Those that don't follow God, they don't have to worry about tithing their money to God. Wouldn't it be just nice to just have a little more? They get to have whatever their hearts desire. Or have you wondered what it would be like to give in to sexual sin from time to time without feeling guilty for it? Wow, that's tempting. And it seems like many give in to these illicit desires, and they seem to not experience any negative consequences. Well, so it seems. It's tempting. That's what Asaph was thinking. In verse 11 and 12, we see that the wicked explicitly say, how can God know? As if to say that God does not care about their pursuit of wickedness because they have not been hindered by God. They misinterpreted God's patience for God's approval. And this right here is a scary thought, to think just because we haven't seen consequences for our sin, that God must not care about it. Friends, don't mistake prosperity in your life as God's stamp of approval for your sin. 
That's what the wicked in this psalm thought. Regardless, it is understandable to be confused about this. Asaph was confused about this as, as well. And by verse 13, he is wondering if he's wasting all of his time with following God. Read verse 13. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. His envy of the wicked made him wonder about the benefits of following God, which just seemed harder, and it seemed like there wasn't much of a payoff for him. He's striving to live a holy life. He's working hard to follow God's commands, but it seems like all he received for this is being stricken and rebuked. Now, these words are likely referring to his constant struggle with sin, which leads to discipline by God and others. Ugh, that just seems hard and painful. This kind of life just didn't seem worth it to Asaph. Life over there seemed much more prosperous. prosperous. They don't have to put up with these rules, and they don't have to feel guilty about not following them. Now, are you weary this morning to make sense of your circumstances? Wondering if it would just be easier to not bother with God and to just do your own thing. Asaph felt like that. He's utterly frustrated, angry, and by verse 16, he is done. The very thought of trying to make sense of them, this seemed to him a wearisome task. He didn't want to go there. He didn't want to deal with all these negative emotions. It just seemed too hard to figure out. And this further led him longing for the life that the wicked seemed to enjoy. Until, until verse 17. When God, who is good to his covenant people, in his kindness and mercy, brings a clarifying revelation to Asaph. Point number two, God's revelation is clarifying. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Asaph experiences a decisive breakthrough when he enters into the sanctuary of God. Now, the sanctuary of God is the temple in Jerusalem. As he enters the temple, he encounters the power and glory of the living God, and he is changed. And not only are his thoughts clarified, but his desires are also transformed. Let's see how that works out. God helps him see that the wicked are set in slippery places, destined for ruin. Consider how Asaph mentioned in verse 2 that his foot almost slipped. With the wicked here in this verse, they are destined to slip into ruin. 
even though the wicked seem to flourish presently, they seem to live healthy and wealthy lives, it will end in sudden death. What happens then? Now, while Asaph doesn't mention explicitly what happens to the wicked after they, they die, it is implied in these verses that they will not be received into glory, unlike the righteous. We'll see that in verse 24. What he is implying here that there is a final judgment for the wicked, just like it's referred to in Psalm chapter 1. Now, notice how this judgment is going to come upon the wicked. It says in verse 20, like a dream when one wakes, God will bring judgment upon them. Have you ever had a dream where it is so vivid, it is so real that you think that that is the reality that you are living? And when you wake up, you are so confused to find yourself living in a different reality. This is the life of the wicked. They think they are enjoying a life full of pleasures and not being held accountable to God in their pride and arrogance. But just like a dream ends, they will find themselves in a different reality than they were living. God himself will judge them, and they are going to experience everlasting punishment in hell. What a shocking turn of events for someone who lived their life devoid of God, thinking they could just eat, drink, and be merry. It is utter foolishness to want the pleasures and comforts of this dream world and neglect Christ. Now, after God reveals to Asaph the end of the wicked, God in his kindness also helps Asaph see his ignorance in all of this. Have you ever looked back at a time in your life and said, man, boy, I was an idiot. What the heck was I thinking? This is exactly the point that God leaves Asaph to in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He confesses here finally that he was bitter and he was ignorant towards God. He admits that he was foolish. He even uses words like brutish and compares himself to an animal with no understanding. Confession. This is the big aha moment for Asaph. Thankfully, God doesn't like to leave us feeling like an idiot, um, but he also reassures us that he is with us. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Finally, Asaph sees that no matter his circumstances, he sees that God is holding his hand. He sees that God is going to ensure that he is not going to slip and fall. He sees that God is leading him and guiding him with wisdom and understanding. And God himself will ensure that Asaph will be with him forever in glory. Thankfully, this encounter with God brings Asaph some helpful reminders for his head to remember. But God's not done with him yet. Because God knows that Asaph's problem is rooted much deeper in his heart, God moves deeper to transform his desires. 
let's move to the third point. Desiring to be near God brings eternal satisfaction. So God here is not content that Asaph is just believing that the way of the wicked will perish and the way of the righteous will live with God forever. God also wants to transform Asaph's desires so that he can experience deep and satisfying communion with the living God. That is the end for which Asaph was created. That's the end for which you and I were created. And when God changes Asaph's desires, he cries out in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Not only does Asaph no longer envy the wicked, but now he desires God more than anything else in the world more than the pleasures the wicked enjoy, more than the many good things in this world, Asaph is not interested in any of it. He desires nothing beside God. He even says that even, even, even if his flesh and heart fail, even if his physical well-being suffers, he wants God more than that. Man, imagine that kind of transformation of your desires. Friends, there is no other words that glorify God more than these. There is nothing on earth I desire beside you. This is nothing more than a miraculous transformation of Asaph's desires. And look where it ends. It ends with childlike faith that expresses itself in praise. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. He says, all I want to be is near God. The only thing that matters to him now, because he has now experienced the joy, the contentment, and the peace that comes with being near God. Friends, when is the last time you said these words to God. All I want to do is be near you. It's like a little child that feels so secure in the presence of his father that it's the only place that he wants to be. And once Asaph experiences this deep satisfaction, this deep joy, this contentment, this peace in the presence of God, he cannot help but testify to others of all of God's works. Asaph is one of the clearest examples of an ordinary guy who struggled with immoral desires like us, but is transformed by the power of God to find deep satisfaction in being near God. So, how does this psalm point to the person and work of Christ? Asaph begins with a wonderful promise that truly God is good to Israel. Now, God's promises to Israel extend to his people from all nations with the coming of Christ. 
And Asaph ends this psalm with one of the greatest blessings of being part of the covenant people of God. Truly, it is good for me to be near God. Asaph has tasted and he has seen that the Lord is good. He has personally experienced joy, contentment, and peace, and eternal security that comes from being brought near to God. But how can sinful humans like Asaph and like us with wicked and immoral desires be brought near a holy God? Friends, the privilege of being brought near to God is only possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 says this, But now in Christ, you who were once far off, all of us, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. We were alienated from God. We were dead in our trespasses, rightfully under God's wrath. But now, in Christ, we have been brought near. We have been reconciled to experience and enjoy communion with God. Friends, this is the good news for all of those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ. We have been made sons and daughters of God to enjoy his nearness, his presence, and unending favor. Isn't that marvelous? It is. Now, let me just close with a few points of application. Number one, here's, there's so much application here. I just picked, picked a few that I thought were helpful. Number one, God is just as concerned with your desires as he is with your beliefs. Asaph had good theology but his desires were causing him to slip away from God. Asaph would not be one to say that God cares about what you believe, but not about what you feel towards him. He would say belief is important, but so is your desire towards God. We must be a people that are just as concerned with our desire for God as our belief in God. Yes, right doctrine is important, but if your right doctrine does not lead you to heartwarming worship and a desire to be near God, you have not experienced the beauty of our salvation. Don't be content with right theology alone. That only gets you halfway. Come to God and stay there until he gives you a desire to be near him. Number two, guard your heart against envy. That's pretty explicit throughout the psalm. It's understandable to be tempted by this world. There are many temptations and many pleasures available instantly. Many shortcuts, shortcuts that will bring instant gratification with your money, with your reputation, with your eyes, with your hands, with your fingers. But it is all a matter of perspective. The psalmist here reminds us of, of, of an eternal perspective that the wicked are going to be swept away in an instant and the righteous will dwell with the Lord forevermore. For the righteous, there is much suffering and trial that has been purposed for us who follow Christ. But no matter how hard things are in this life, we have an imperishable inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us. Dia Carson says this, 
Everything depends on where you start. If you begin by envying the prosperity of the wicked, the human mind can interpret the data so as to rule out and charge God with unfairness and to make piety and purity look silly. But if you begin with genuine delight in God, both in this world and in the world to come, you can put up with flesh and heart failing and be absolutely confident that far from being the victim of injustice, you are in the best possible position near to the good and sovereign God. Man. Now, maybe you don't struggle like Asaph this morning with envying the wicked, but you envy the good gifts that God seems to withhold from you and gives to other believers. It's just a different kind of the same envy. And the remedy for that kind of envy is the same as a remedy for Asaph. Friends, you need your desires transformed by God who satisfies the deepest longing of your heart. Don't settle for anything less than that. Finally, worship is the means by which God transforms our desires. Now, in this psalm, Asaph encountered God in the temple, which is a place of worship for Israel. Now, we really don't have specific information on what exactly happened there. He, he may have seen a vision of God like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6. He may have heard someone explaining or expounding the Scriptures. Or maybe he received a prophetic word. Regardless, the key point is that the place of worship is where he encountered the living God and was changed. That is clear. And now that the presence of God is no longer localized in a temple in Jerusalem, God is present with us by His Spirit wherever we are. And especially when we gather together corporately to worship Him. Now, let's think about what worship is briefly. And I can't go into this whole thing about it, but, but let me just explain this. Worship is not simply something we bring to God. It is the very means by which God transforms our desires. Again, James K.A. Smith says this, Worship works from top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give Him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the, it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Man, that is so helpful. Are you tired of living with a lack of desire for God? Worship Him. Ask Him to reveal Himself to you in a new way. I found this quote from Ray Ortland really helpful. He says this, Satisfied Christians are simply frustrated Christians to whom God reveals Himself in a new way. So good. Satisfied Christians are simply frustrated Christians to whom God reveals Himself in a new way. 
Now, if you don't understand Asaph's words about desiring God about every, above everything else in this world, let me encourage you, don't lose heart. Just know that there is something more than what you've been experiencing. Instead, confess to the Lord and confess to one another the lack of desire to be near him. Maybe some of you are just saying, man, man this just sounds too fluffy to want to be near God. That just sounds fluffy to me. Let me tell you this. To want to be near God is the godliest of all desires you can have. It's not fluffy at all. It is what you were created for. But it's okay. If this is tough, that's okay. Don't lose heart. Confess to the Lord. Confess to one another. Honesty in worship and with one another, it can really transform your life. It can transform this church. So I hope together in Psalm 73 you are encouraged, and we've been encouraged by Asaph to see clearly that God cares about your desires, and he's working to transform your desires to find a deep and satisfying fulfillment in him. Amen.